with me this morning. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. We continue on our study through Mark's gospel together. And uh, this morning in Sunday school, we talked about the issue of pain and suffering in this world and how skeptics will point to that as their reasons for denying the existence of God. Saying if God is good, then why is there suffering? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he do anything about it? The Bible shows us clearly from the very beginning that suffering entered into this world because of mankind's sin and how God and His grace and His mercy has overcome through Jesus Christ the uh, power of evil and suffering in this world. Mark reintroduces us today to the character of John the Baptist and he shows us that just because a person is faithful in their service to God does not mean they are exempt from pain and suffering. In fact, it's often the case the opposite is true. The more faithful you are, the more persecution you will need to endure. Which leads us, I believe, to the point of this text today is be prepared to pay the ultimate price for your faith in Jesus Christ, if need be. If you have to take a stand for your faith, be prepared to pay the ultimate price, if need be, for your faith and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're able to this morning, I'd like to ask you to stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Word of God. Reading from Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 14, and these words were written by Mark under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he writes, And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known, and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, He is Elijah, and others were saying, He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Let us pray together. Our Father God, we come into your presence once again to give you praise and glory and to thank you, God, for your word. That you are a God who has revealed yourself. You are a God who speaks. And as such, your word carries your power and your authority. And your word speaks truth. And your word brings life and light and hope. Father, I pray you would speak to us loud and clear this morning through the presentation of your word. God, that you would bless it. God, that you would transform us. God, that you would empower us to be on mission for you, no matter the cost. And Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. 
a reminder of the context that we find ourselves in today in this passage. Remember in verses 7 through 13, Jesus had just commissioned the disciples to go out and to preach and cast out demons. And as they were busy on their mission, as they were finding success, Jesus also warned them that there may be some that do not receive your message about me. And and in that case, you need to be prepared to deal with what would look on the surface to be failure on your part, but really is persecution from the enemy. As the disciples are on mission in verse 14, it says that that Herod hears about this mission that's going on, and, and he hears about this preaching going on about repentance. And he hears about marvelous things being done at the hands of Jesus and his disciples. And, and, and Herod has a little bit of a flashback about someone else who used to preach repentance, about someone else who went out with boldness and conviction. And Herod has a flashback about John the Baptist and about what Herod had done to this righteous and this holy man. I shared last week that this is another instance of a Mark and Sandwich where Mark talks about one thing and then he talks about something else and then he goes back to what he started with. In verse 30, we see that Jesus and the disciples gather together and they report to him about all that they were doing. So Mark introduces this idea of the disciples on mission. He comes back to the disciples reporting about what happened on their mission. And in between this, we find the meat of the sandwich, this account about John the Baptist and the the martyrdom that he endured. I believe this is meant to teach us the lesson that being on mission for Jesus oftentimes brings persecution. And we need to be prepared for that, and, and we need to understand that we have to pay the ultimate price, if need be, for following Jesus Christ. There are only two accounts in the book of Mark that aren't dealing specifically with Jesus. And both of them are about John the Baptist. The first one we saw back in chapter 1, it shows John was the forerunner to Jesus. He was the forerunner in his mission, in his ministry, in his message. John was the forerunner to Jesus. In a lot of ways, preparing the ground, preparing the pathway for the coming of the Messiah. And here Mark again shows us about John the Baptist. And this is a message of warning and a message of encouragement. A message of warning to understand that there are enemy forces that are opposed to the gospel and they will do everything they can to try to stop the spread of the message. It's also a message of encouragement that shows us that it's not about us. The message and and the kingdom of God will continue to grow and multiply. And we get the privilege of of playing a small part in this. In fact, we know from the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
We know this as the reader, but in the story, the disciples and the others are coming to grips with exactly who is this man, Jesus. He's often misunderstood, and we as his followers are often misunderstood as well. In verse 14 and 15, we see, first of all, that godly people are often viewed with gullible superstition. Gullible superstition that people have all kinds of crazy ideas about Jesus and about Christians. And a lot of times these ideas will color the way people look at us. As the disciples were out there preaching and making waves, people began to notice and begin to talk about it. And they begin to talk about who is Jesus. They say, well, he's John the Baptist, reincarnated. Or he is Elijah, or he's one of the prophets. And while these are flattering statements about Jesus, they're all insufficient. Jesus is not John the Baptist. He is greater than John the Baptist. He's not just a prophet, a teacher, a good man. He is the Son of God. And a lot of people have this view of Jesus being this, this hippie. But Jesus is the all-powerful creator of the heavens and the earth. And we need to get past this gullible superstition that the world has and present the truth about who Jesus Christ really is. And then in verse 16, we see oftentimes we are viewed with guilty suspicion. As we begin to preach, and as we begin to represent holiness and godliness, and we come into, into confrontation with those who are opposed to God, oftentimes our preaching or our, our lifestyle will cause them to feel guilt and conviction over sin. As Herod hears about Jesus and his message of repentance, he remembers this man, John the Baptist. He says, John, whom I beheaded. So Herod is acknowledging his own guilt. He says, I have murdered this man and now it's coming back to haunt me. As Jesus preached the message of repentance, it was the same message John the Baptist preached. It's the same message you and I are to preach. Repent from your sin, turn from your sin, and trust in Jesus Christ. And as we do that, those who are guilty and those who are still caught up in their trespasses and sins they don't want to hear that because it makes them feel guilt and then when they begin to feel guilt they begin to question our motives why are you telling me I need to change who are you to tell me what I need to believe and how I need to live and this causes misunderstanding from the world towards Christians but you know this is nothing new the ancient Romans used to accuse the Christians of being atheistic cannibals he said why in the world did they think that well first of all Christians would not worship the emperor and Christians would not worship all of the Roman gods and so they're atheistic they don't even believe in, in our gods and in fact they, they do this thing where, where they eat the flesh and, and drink the blood of somebody we think about the Lord's Supper and the communion that Jesus gave and they hear about this and they say these are atheists and they eat flesh and they drink blood these, these are cannibals and nothing could be further from the truth but they took what they heard and misunderstood it and applied it to the Christians it's the same thing in our culture today we're often misunderstood but don't let that deter you 
from doing what God called you to do. Don't let other people's opinions, don't let popular culture sway you one way or the other. Like Jesus Christ and his disciples, stay faithful to the mission, to the task at hand. Godly people are misunderstood. But even further than that, we see the account of John the Baptist today, and it shows us that godly people are mistreated. Because of our faith in Christ, because of our stance, we are often mistreated. And this flashback, starting in verse 17 from King, from King Herod, shows us how persecution can ramp up and how things get out of hand in the way people treat Christians. In verses 17 and 18, we see, first of all, Herod imprisoned John. Here is the man that's given the title King Herod, although he wasn't technically a king, he was a tetrarch. When Herod the Great, his father, who was, who was the king when Jesus was born, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided amongst four individuals, one of which was his son here, Herod, Antipas. And Antipas, just like his father, abuses his power and his authority. And in this place, and in this way, he imprisons John, first of all, for his confrontation. In verse 17, John confronts Herod for marrying his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. The way the story goes, Herod and his wife visited Philip and Herodias in Rome, and while they were there, the two fell in love with one another. Herod divorces his wife. Herodias divorces from her husband Philip, and the two of them get together. So here is a man marrying his sister-in-law while the brother was still alive. And to, and to make matters worse, not only is this his sister-in-law, this is his niece. And so John comes on the scene and, and he confronts them and says, this is wrong. This is wrong. And John is not ashamed or afraid to say what's right and what's wrong. He risks the consequences. And he confronted them in their sin. And if we want lost people to get saved, if we want to see people escape the clutches of the enemy, if we want to see people not go to hell, you have got to confront them with this problem called sin. We've all got it. Every single one of us. And the only way that we could ever overcome this problem of sin, we've got to be confronted with the reality of sin and rebellion. And here is John, in the midst of this public scandal, here is John not sugarcoating it one bit, confronting Herod and his wife, much like Elijah confronted Jezebel and Ahab. And there's a lot of similarities between those stories. It's, it's, it's fascinating how, how John the Baptist oftentimes is painted as Elijah when there are so many similarities between the two. Not only was he imprisoned for his confrontation, he was imprisoned for his condemnation. Verse 18, John had been saying to him, and the language there is, is repetitively, John kept on saying to him, this is sin. It is not lawful. This is contrary to the, to the word of God. What you are doing is outside the boundaries of God's revealed word. And John continually condemned them and John called sin sin 
John wasn't afraid if he hurt someone's feelings. John wasn't swayed by popular public opinion. John said, this is wrong, period. You need to repent from this. And the king did not like hearing that one bit. But again, we're not concerned about people feeling good about themselves. We want people to confront the reality that they are sinners, they need forgiveness, and Jesus is the only way. And a person will never understand their need for Jesus unless they first understand they are lost and they're headed to hell. You've got to know the bad news to truly appreciate the good news. And that's what we do when we share the good news of Jesus Christ. We share the gospel that Jesus died for a person's sins. Then we see also the next thing in verses 19 through 20. Even though John confronted and condemned Herod, Herod was impressed by John. Strangely enough, as it sounds, that there was something appealing about this preacher's faith. There was something remarkable, something outstanding about John that made an impact on Herod. First of all, in verse 19 and 20, we see it was his convictions. He was impressed by his convictions. Here was a man who believed in something. Here was a man who stood upon something. Here was a man that would not be moved from what he believed in. His faith in God was so solid. Verse 19, it says, Herodias had a grudge against John, wanted to put him to death, but she couldn't do it. Why? Because her husband preserved and kept John alive. It says her husband was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. His conduct, his convictions, he saw the way that John lived his life. His convictions... He said, here's a man who believes something and his belief impacts his behavior. Here's a man who not only preaches something, here's a man who practices something. And it was John's convictions that impressed Herod. But not only was his convictions, it was his conversation. His conversation made a difference. Verse 20, it says, Herod knew he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed. He was very troubled by what he heard. John's message was straight. It was penetrating. It bothered him. However, it says he used to enjoy listening to him. I heard an account of Henry VIII. Remember him in England, the great king? He had a, a preacher that would come and preach for him. And one day this preacher preached against immorality he preached against divorce. He, he preached against promiscuity and gluttony, all the things that, Herod the, Herod, uh, all the things that uh, Henry VIII was renowned for. And Henry said, you know, I'm so angry at this man. I want you to tell him to come back next week. And when he comes back next week, I want him to apologize. Well, sure enough, the preacher came back the next week, and he didn't apologize. He preached the exact same message and he preached it with a lot more intensity and a lot more fervor and when he was finished Henry VIII said I thank God for a man like this who has this kind of conviction although Henry VIII never came to accept the faith that we believe that this preacher was preaching on he was impressed by what he heard 
And as we go out into this world and we begin to live a godly life, a, a holy life, a, a righteous life like John, and we begin to, to communicate the message of the gospel, and we do it in a true way, in a loving way, and we do it with the right motives, we want to truly see people get saved. Even though people will oppose us, there will be something strangely attractive about our faith. People will understand that we truly believe what we say we do and we stand on God's Word. It will make a difference. People will be impressed by this. Then we come to verses 21 through 29 and this is where really the story begins to shift in a negative direction for John that while Herod was impressed by John, unfortunately he ignored John. He ignored the teachings of John, the, the importance of repentance and living a holy and a godly life. Herod ignored this. It's been said before, he heard John, but he did not heed John. As John preached holiness and repentance... In verse 21 through 25, we see, first of all, a depraved scene. A depraved scene. This is a grotesque picture of the sinfulness of fallen humanity. You know, we see it all in this story. We see pride. We see gluttony, drunkenness, lust, foolishness, vengeance, cruelty. One commentator said, this is sin on steroids. <laughs> this party that was taking place, this birthday party. And by the way, Jews saw birthday parties as pagan. They did not participate in them in that culture. And we see Herod and the way he's celebrating, and we see a reason why they were skeptical of these type of things. But first of all, in verse 21, it says, A strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday party, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, this was a pride thing. He wanted to really impress these influential men. And he threw this banquet, and of course there would be gluttony and there would be drunkenness. This was common for Herod in his, in his courts. In verse 22 it says, And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced. Now this was his stepdaughter. This would be his great niece, his brother's daughter so she came in and danced and she pleased Herod and his dinner guest this was perhaps a teenage girl at the uh, behest of her own mother sent into this room of drunken prideful lustful men and dancing provocatively in order to really grab their attention to use sex to manipulate these men into doing something that perhaps they did not want to do. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in a dance, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, I will give it to you. He was so impressed and so inflamed with passion over what he saw, he offered her this, what he considered to be a very gracious offer to demonstrate how much we appreciated your dancing and really to, to show off for his dinner guests, let me show you how gracious of a man I am. I'll reward those who do good things for me, and I'm going to offer this young girl anything she wants. 
verse 23, he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. Now, first of all, it wasn't Herod's to give away. He was a puppet leader from underneath the authority of Rome. And he knew that, and his dinner guests knew that, but again, this was just a proverbial way for him to say, I'll give you anything as a demonstration of my, my goodness. In verse 24, she went out and said to her mother, which leads us to believe her mother was the one who sent, their, sent her in there on purpose for this exact reason. She said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And immediately she said, the head of John the Baptist. There was no delay. There was no let me think about this. Immediately, this was her plan that was hatched from her devious hearts. I want John dead, and I'm going to use any method I have at my availability to do that, even if it means prostituting my teenage daughter to bring this about. Vengeance. She waited a long time for this moment, and she knew exactly what she wanted. I want the head of John the Baptist. Verse 25, immediately the girl comes back in in a hurry to the king and said, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist and I want it on a platter see the mother just said give me the head of John the Baptist but the girl says following in the cruel footsteps of her mother give me the head of John the Baptist at once and give it to me on a platter you see this girl's already following in the footsteps of her mother why wouldn't she when all that she has seen and heard and experienced in her own family was nothing but sinful degradation. She comes in and says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. A depraved scene leads to verse 26, a dejected sinner. A dejected sinner. Here is, here is Herod. He shifts from ultimate excitement suddenly to despair when he realizes what has happened. It says in verse 26, although the king was very sorry he gave an oath in front of all of these men to impress them, and it backfires on him. And he has a choice to make. I know John is holy. I know John is a righteous man. I know John does not deserve to die. But I've got all this pressure, the court of public opinion, people are going to see me as weak if I don't do this now offered this oath and it says in verse 26 because of his oaths because of his dinner guests he was unwilling to refuse her he was unwilling to take a stand for what he knew was right and he allowed an innocent man to be condemned to death he caved verse 27 and 28 we see a destroyed saint Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. And with that we get the image, evil wins. Here is John. He is a holy man, a godly man. Did not deserve any of this treatment. Does not deserve to be in prison. Did not deserve to be beheaded. Certainly did not deserve to have his head given to a woman on a platter. And yet it happened. And we look at this and we say, well, what good does it do? 
What good does it do to, to be faithful to God if something like this is going to happen to you? And then we begin to understand if John had to do it all over again, would he have done anything different? Absolutely not. Because John understood from the very beginning there is one coming after me whose shoes I am not worthy to untie. There is one coming after me who is God, the Son of God in human flesh. I, it's not about my kingdom. It's about His kingdom. And if I have to die, if I have to decrease so that He may increase, then so be it. It's all about the kingdom of God. It's all about how God uses me and not only me, I'm not the only mouthpiece for God. Jesus is on the scene. His disciples, my time has come. So be it. God, have your will, have your way. A destroyed saint. And we look at this and we say, poor John. He didn't deserve this and surely he did not. And I wish that a man as great as John had a better way of going out. But you know what? His way of going out had an impact on others. When they saw John take that stand, they were emboldened to do the same. Because we see in verse 29, we see the devoted students. When his disciples heard about this, John's disciples heard about this, they came and they took away his body and laid it in a tomb. They risked their own hide to give their master, their teacher, a proper burial. See, John had, had a profound impact on these men. And when he was gone, these men took his message and they carried on with it. In the book of Acts, chapter 19, Paul comes to Ephesus and he finds some disciples of John there in modern-day Turkey. John's followers and John's disciples were still going and they were still preaching. They had to correct some of their theology at that point after the cross, the resurrection, and the falling of the Holy Spirit. But these were men that were still carrying on. They were encouraged, emboldened. And we see John's message, and we see this story about John, and I, and I feel the encouragement in it. Would I be willing to do this as well? Would I take such a stand if my life was on the line? Would I back down and cave? Or would I stand firm in my convictions? that there is sin and there is righteousness and God is the determiner of that. Not myself or not culture. John's impact continued beyond the grave. May the same be said for you and I. I don't know if you've caught any of this along the way or not. But there's a lot of similarities between the story of John the Baptist and what happens to his cousin Jesus of Nazareth. It says John was a right man, a, a holy man. Jesus was the only man without sin. It says that John was opposed for his, his preaching of the Word of God. Jesus likewise was opposed. It says that John was given over by a political leader that knew he was innocent yet caved to public pressure, Jesus was handed over by Pilate, who washed his hands as if somehow that would exonerate him from his guilt. Jesus was crucified, murdered, even though he was innocent. 
Yet his disciples made sure he had a proper burial as Joseph of Arimathea risked his position on the Sanhedrin and went to Pilate and said, Could I have the body that I might bury the body? And he and Nicodemus devoted themselves to their master. You see, the same thing is presented to us as Christians today. Will we follow in the footsteps of Jesus who followed in the footsteps of John, who followed in the footsteps of many of the Old Testament prophets themselves? Will we be willing to take a stand when the opportunity presents itself? When Jesus said, pick up your cross daily, he really meant that. The cross was a form of execution. He said, you've got to die to yourself daily. And that might mean that you face persecution socially. You might face it emotionally or, or relationally. And you might face persecution physically. The question that is posed is this. Are you willing to die for the gospel? Are you willing to die for the gospel? Is it that real to you? Does it mean that much to you? Has it impacted you in that way? Are you willing to die for the gospel? There are people for the last 2,000 years that have been doing that. There are people in our world today and countries all around this world that are dying for the gospel. And as our culture continues to shift, persecution against Christians in our own country will be increasing and it might come to that point one day where you and I would be persecuted physically for the gospel. Would you be willing? Because persecution separates the wheat from the chaff. But it's also been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As men and women give their lives for the gospel, the church is strengthened and the kingdom of God increases. So are you prepared to pay the ultimate price if need be? John the Baptist was prepared. The disciples were prepared. Jesus was prepared. Has the gospel made that difference in your life? Would you die for your Lord who died for you. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in humility this morning, confessing we are sinners, confessing that we are oftentimes impacted by the flesh, confessing, God, that too oftentimes we think about our own kingdoms and our own well-being, our own comforts, And Father, we forsake you. We fail to yield to the Spirit. We thank you, God, for men like John the Baptist who took a stand. Because of that stand, he lost his life. But as that evil woman received his head, God, you received his Spirit into heaven. Jesus himself said there was not a human being born to a woman that was greater than John the Baptist. But even he is least in the kingdom of God. Father, it's all about our response to Jesus. It's all about acknowledging that we are sinners.
repenting, trusting in Jesus, surrendering our lives, dying to self, even perhaps even dying physically for the gospel. The question we ask is, is it worth it? And your word says, oh yes, indeed, it is worth it. So Lord, we are challenged today to live a life that speaks, to live a life that communicates the truth, to live a life that persuades individuals to be saved. Lord, it's the opportunity right now presenting itself. As this song is sung, I pray that someone without Christ would have the boldness to walk the aisle today and say, I need to be saved. Put their trust in Jesus. Perhaps someone has not been living the life that they should have been and you have challenged them through the preaching of your word to once again surrender as they ought to. Maybe someone, God, you are calling to join this fellowship through baptism or moving a church letter. Lord, kingdom work is being done. It's being done in this place, and I believe that you are calling and drawing more people here so that we can go out into this world like the disciples, like John, and preach the truth. Lord, any number of decisions could be made today from the mission field to the ministry. Lord, your will be done. Speak to us. Speak to us that we might obey. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.